Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Michaela Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. Today, we're going to go back to the issue of Ireland. As you know, we've been doing some work with British citizens who live in Ireland in a time of Brexit. And this is, as we'll we'll discuss a little bit more today, has a slightly different uh, legal structure organising it than British citizens living elsewhere in the EU 26. And I've invited um, Professor Aoife O'Donoghue, um, who's a professor of international law and governance, and um, Colin Murray, who's a reader of public law, to come and talk to me a little bit about the common travel area. Because... The last time I talked about this with someone, I think we just concluded that it was incredibly vague. So perhaps you could start by telling me a little bit about what the common travel area is and what, why it was brought about. Well, I think the reason that it seems incredibly vague is almost deliberate. When the common travel area emerged, it was in the era of border creation across Europe immediately after the First World War. Huge chunks of Europe had been cut up and carved in different ways by the Treaty of Versailles, and borders had sprung where there had been no border ever, or at the very least for centuries. And alongside that happening, in the aftermath of the First World War, 26 counties that today make up the Republic of Ireland broke away in a war of independence from the United Kingdom. Now, that was a visceral rupture that affects Irish society through to this day. But the borderline or the boundary line wasn't clearly one based upon population or wasn't based upon two sides in that war of independence. It was along county lines. Six counties in Ireland remained in the UK, 26 counties left. And there was no natural border feature. There were no border arrangements. There were centuries of people moving back and forth down roads that, for their purposes, had always existed. And there was also a backdrop whereby the UK, as an economy, even after Ireland had left the United Kingdom, relied upon Irish labour moving backwards and forwards between the United Kingdom and Ireland. And so there was a lot of self-interest involved in both sides in not trying to demark a border strictly for people and to try to allow these population flows to continue. In the 1920s, it wasn't particularly formalised, if you like, the entire idea of Irish independence, whilst it didn't have the mantra of take back control, certainly wasn't about to say we're immediately entering into essentially a shared immigration area with the United Kingdom that we've just violently broken away from. So the informality was very much part and parcel of trying to keep this show on the road. There was an idea of what needed to be done to improve or to let people continue to live their lives on a day-to-day basis, but both states wanted to try to keep this essentially off the level of being a legal treaty. And that arrangement morphed, it changed, it was suspended temporarily during the Second World War, although 
immigration didn't stop at that time. The wartime economy in the UK still relied on a lot of Irish labour moving across, but it moved to a registration basis. And so it was put on a more formal footing in terms of governments getting together and saying, let's restore that idea of a common travel area in 1952. But again, no treaty. It was again at the time where the UK was tightening up immigration arrangements for Commonwealth citizens, and essentially special arrangements were being put in place for Ireland at this point. It was where Ireland had broken out of the Commonwealth, it had become a republic, and so you start to see a divergence on Irish people in the UK being treated as not foreign under the language of the Ireland Act of 1949. And that had a corollary in, uh, in Ireland for UK citizens. UK citizens were treated as being not aliens under the Aliens Act of 1935 in Ireland. So there were domestic arrangements that were put in place that sort of mirrored each other, but no binding international agreement between the countries. And that bumped along, if you like, as a system, pretty much through to the present day. Now, there were certainly issues, if you like, during mm. the conflict in Northern Ireland, it became easier probably to travel between Great Britain and Ireland directly on a ferry. There'd be no checks on that than there would be the comparative security checks that existed at the land border. But certainly into the 21st century and alongside the completion of the European single market and the removal of customs infrastructure in the early 1990s, the removal of security infrastructure in the late 1990s after the Belfast and the Good Friday Agreement, all of that common travel area there as well contributed to the opening up and what's now referred to as the frictionless border on the island of Ireland. I think that's really useful in terms of outlining how this is a kind of a free movement agreement between the United Kingdom and Ireland that was actually very much in the service of the economic needs of the United Kingdom initially and to facilitate that easy movement of a labour force essentially, so a labour migration in those early days. What I really liked about what you've been writing about the common travel area was how you tease out the relationship of the common travel area to domestic law in Ireland and the United Kingdom, but also that kind of uneasy relationship then that it has to some elements of EU law, because I think it's a kind of a weird, I don't know, fusing of the two in a strange way, which obviously is under threat through Brexit. The common travel area has always been exceptional. So I actually remember back to the start of before the referendum, having arguments with EU lawyers who kept telling me the common travel area was in fact not in accordance with EU law. But the way that both states defined it was to unwittingly, because it was done before the European Union, but to define each other as not aliens or not foreign. So it brought it into the realm of quasi-citizenship. So you're everything but an actual citizen. So that allowed it to be separate from the free movement because how you define citizenship is and immigration is still the purview of domestic law. So that it allowed it to kind of cut it away from the EU because obviously Irish uh, citizens in the UK and UK citizens in Ireland are, have more rights than EU citizens. So it is that sort of exceptional status that they were given. And that is because they were able to put it into you know, domestic citizenship, immigration law, 
rather than having it on the basis. So they didn't define it on labour, they defined it on the basis of that citizenship. And that was important as well, because after independence, you had quite a few people who would have identified as British still in the Republic of Ireland. So obviously there was a huge group in Northern Ireland, but in the Republic, there still would have been. So you end up with the sort of not alien, not foreign, and sort of these like categories like the Irish-British subject, which is a, a really sort of really particular category just for this very small group of people. But it was to sort of accommodate that idea that it's not just about the labour. So that made it much easier when we get to the European Union and you get into non-discrimination law and you get to treating all EU citizens equally because obviously neither Ireland or the UK do treat all EU citizens equally. They treat the Irish and the British vice versa better. But what you you get the non-alien and the non-foreign used to interpret different bits of domestic law. So if it's around voting, for instance, or running for election, for instance. So those kind of things that are normally connected to citizenship and nationality, the non-foreign bit allowed people to fit into that category. The big exception to that would be referendums in the Republic where UK citizens can't vote in, in referendums. And that's the only sort of big difference between the two. Um, but it does allow, because it's that idea of quasi-citizenship, it allows for it to just be slipped in. So you don't find in domestic law in either place a big exception for the Irish or the British. What you find is they just interpret it in a particular way. Or, or if they remember, sometimes they put in the Irish-British, but we found that more often than not, they've forgotten to actually specifically say and the exception. So it's sort of built into that sort of nationality citizenship route rather than an immigration route, which is the way that EU law pretty much works. It's that idea of immigration and being a worker and being an EU worker that morphed into EU citizenship. It kind of started with citizenship, which facilitated labour um, when it comes to the common travel That's really fascinating and really clear in terms of trying to outline the difference between how that common travel area supported, well, was underpinned and written into that domestic law in in Ireland and in the United Kingdom, and why it's just suddenly clicked to me why this is different to kind of EU citizenship, which of course is not written into nationality and citizenship law in domestic policy. So um, the thing that I think kind of makes it really clear is that it was one country. And if you think about it in that way, that United Kingdom was Great Britain and Ireland. So it was one country that broke into two countries. And we don't think about it in that way, really, in, in, in either Ireland or the UK, but that's actually what happened. And if you think about it that way, then the citizenship and nationality element becomes really important because you will have people left who thought they had one citizenship and all of a sudden had a different one. Yeah. So if you think about it as a breakup of a country rather than two countries coming together and figuring out how the two countries allow their citizens to go back and forth. I think it becomes clearer how it evolved the way it did. That's really, really helpful in terms of delineating what the particular issue is um, there. So, But I think you, you describe in your work how the common travel area has a slightly volatile history. And I was just wondering how you think that frames the current discussions about the future of the common travel area. Because, of course, Brexit does kind of throw some of the issues around the common travel area, the kind of the vagueness, all of these things, into quite sharp relief, doesn't it? So the common travel area has been suspended. And it 
doesn't exist. It isn't like the EU treaties in an international treaty that clearly codifies it and has an adjudication mechanism. And all of that matters in day-to-day -day life. When we talk about Irish citizens in the UK being not foreign or UK citizens in Ireland being treated as not alien, but the old legislation was slightly updated into the 1990s, you get, if you like, ideas that aren't really based around modern immigration law and that are perhaps hard to litigate if something goes wrong. There famously has never been a successful case that has invoked the Ireland Act 1949's idea of not being foreign. Because from the 1970s onwards, if people thought there was an actionable right or something that was being impinged upon by Ireland or the UK as states, they went to EU discrimination law. It was a fully worked up system of law and you weren't just relying on a domestic court in a country where you are an immigrant to police that law, you're relying on a European framework that, if you like, has an overarching court layer above it, it has a lot more protection for the individual and where an individual won't feel that nationality or jingoism or some form of prejudice within a legal system might impinge against them. And so EU law coming in as a bolt-on on top probably actually kept the common travel area working in a lot of regards. It almost moved into the background. Mm. Now, there were, as Aoife said, still rights that were more significant in UK law for an Irish citizen or in Ireland for a UK citizen, extra rights that you would get over and above an EU citizen, like voting rights. But they were relatively clearly set out in legislation. For anything else, you didn't need to go back to the general you're not foreign message that is in legislation that in the UK is now 70 years old. You could rely on EU law as something actionable and tangible. So the common travel area in many ways, it's not that it rusted and faded away, but it very much sat in the background behind all of this. And so even though it might look volatile, what you really get is a picture of it being becoming gradually less important over time, fading a little bit behind EU law, which was active. And so you get legislation like the Immigration Act 1971 in the UK, which comes in before the era of cheap airline travel. And it says that if you fly directly into the UK from Ireland and you're an Irish citizen, you won't be subject to immigration checks. It's before mass airline travel, it's before Ireland and the UK join the EU. So theoretically under the law, if you hop on a flight from Dublin to Paris and then you decide to come back to Ireland via London, you could be subject to immigration checks if it weren't for the EEA regulations that are in place. A lot of the law that underpins the common travel area ended up being pretty dated, and that's almost where there's a bit of a scrabble to try to get things updated at the moment. So you said, you know, there's a scrabble to get things updated at the moment. I'm right in thinking that the scrabble to get things updated is to do with Brexit. Yes, entirely. And the problem is that 
The immigration bill that was before Parliament was first mooted in 2017 has had a protracted trip through Parliament whilst the withdrawal agreement has been sucking in all of Parliament's attention over the past six months, was lost in prorogation earlier in September 2019. So suddenly all of the updating that needed to be done for Brexit because those EEA regulations on movement were basically being lost in the Brexit wash. The UK was taking back control of its borders. Now there's back to being the same gap affecting the common travel areas existed before. So whilst Ireland and the UK might be talking more about the common travel area, they might be reaching memorandums of understanding at a bilateral level between two countries on it, the what's the next step they're putting that into domestic law so that it, it applies and can protect people in their day-to-day -day lives that's what's suddenly been thrown up in the air by the immigration bill being lost if there is a no deal brexit or there is a deal and parliament has to return quickly all of this is going to have to be rushed through by statutory instrument rather than being in the, the statute that was being fairly painstakingly worked through the parliamentary process. It also brought to the fore that, I mean, it, it, when you look at the settled status scheme as well, because you can see, if you look at the guidance, it tells, says that Irish citizens can, and uh, Irish citizens from the Republic, if you're born in Northern Ireland and you have an Irish passport, there's a whole other saga yeah. going on there. Your advice is you don't have to apply for settled status because you can rely on the common travel area. But the, the issue there is that while the common travel area, first, when it's not in the bill, hasn't been passed, but all the other rights that are associated with it still aren't actually written down anywhere, except for the Social Security Treaty. And that's the only one that's a treaty. Memorandum of understanding, both sides have said it's not legally binding. So, you know, the Irish have been in the UK have been told you don't have to apply for settled status. But at the same time, you still have quite a grey area where your rights aren't pinned down anywhere for the common travel area. I don't want to paint it as a massive risk or anything, but there is a, a problem. There's also a problem for if you're an Irish citizen in the common travel area, but your partner uh, could be from outside the European Union, and they will have come to live in the UK on the basis of being married to or a partner with an EU citizen. And of course, they won't be they will be partner to an Irish citizen in the UK via the common travel area. But coming to, via the common travel area is only a personal Irish citizenship rights. It means you are then treated like a UK citizen, which is a much harder route. Now, that may be fairer from, from the perspective that the Irish then just get treated as UK citizens when it's bringing in a foreign partner. However, it does mean there's this group of people out there who are married to Irish citizens who do need to apply for settled status. So there is a, I don't think the guidance has made that really clear that if you are, yes, the Irish citizen doesn't have to apply for settled status, though I would recommend doing so, they don't have to, but their non-EU partner definitely does. So there is this sort of, it's not quite a huge group of people, but it is a group of people whose immigration status does need to be settled in some way before basically we, we get to the exit day and that that is a I think um, a message that isn't coming across when you see the guidance is Irish citizens don't have to apply for settled status I think. Almost but their relatives may very well need to but, but they can still get it as an EU citizen's partner an EU citizen's partner can apply for settled status 
but that doesn't require the actual partner to have settled that. They don't check that. This is about the surrender sing route and the and and the withdrawal yes. agreement, right? And how you have to activate the withdrawal agreement in order to get those rights. And yes. if you don't activate that withdrawal agreement through settled status, then you don't get that right. Essentially, right. you can. Um, there's a case going through at the moment, the D'Souza case. Um, so she, it's a kind of example. It is different because of Northern Ireland and the dual citizenship. So her husband is an American. She wanted to bring him in as an EU citizen, as an Irish EU citizen living in the UK, bringing in a non-EU partner. Mm. And the UK government is saying, no, you're a UK citizen. You have to go through via the UK route of bringing in a non-EU partner. And that, they're, the, they're the two different positions, basically, you're in. After Brexit, the Irish basically will slot very easily into the UK category. You will move across. So in lots of ways, the D'Souza example is the kind of the last hurrah of the way that slight the odd route of Irish citizens here under the common travel area but their partners here as partners of EU citizens so it's a kind of strange just uh, this way law works out sometimes you sort of the unforeseen workings out of family life that aren't thought through or people just don't think of these things naturally enough law can't cover every scenario that, that arrives or erupts. It's a kind of a time and place thing, really, at the moment, isn't it? It's just like a very yeah. brief window where there are these slightly odd contradictions that, that are emerging. I mean, you mentioned very, but you said, you know, the only thing that that kind of has been sorted out, I don't know if that's that's the right way of putting it, is the kind of the social security arrangements. Could you just briefly kind of outline what are the you know, the kind of the stakes beneath the common travel area? Because there are a whole set of rights, aren't there, that, that kind of rest on beneath that? So in the memorandum understanding, they're talked about as being the rights that are related to the common travel area, and they run across any number of sectors of life. We've talked about voting already, but it comes to equal access to education for children living in the UK or Ireland, depending on what are uh, depending on your nationality and how you've moved about, it's access to healthcare. Is again, if you're not foreign in the UK, if you're in uh, this category of Irish citizen, there's not those same charges that come with NHS access as someone who is not a UK citizen has to currently apply for or have charged to them. So from healthcare to education. When it comes to social security, it's particularly important because you have had, say, people who are from the UK who have worked all their life in the pharmaceutical industry in Ireland, maybe for 20 years, they then return to the UK to retire, where they accrued their pension benefits. Mm. And how do they get those pension benefits paid? If that bit is settled and is in the binding bilateral treaty, it means that those people can have some security as to where their pension and entitlement will come from down the line. But if you look at any aspect of the welfare state that is dependent upon citizenship, the common travel area matters. If you look at citizenship rights like voting, the common tra or jury service in the UK, the common travel area matters. All of these things are set up as being 
corollaries of that idea of the person not being foreign when they're in the United Kingdom. And vice versa. So, like, I've done, I've done jury service here as an Irish citizen. Got called up and did my jury service. So it's fine when you when you actually actively play it out. But the issue with all of them is that while I think both governments have demonstrated commitment to the common travel area, both governments have said they wish to continue. Both even through all the different changes of government over the last few four years in the UK, there has been a consistent from both governments. However, if you're trying to plan your life, policy commitments from both governments. I mean, there is. They did decide not to put the memorandum of understanding into a binding treaty. Um, and that was a decision that was made. It's unclear which side didn't want it to be a treaty. But there is that sort of, when we see what happens to immigrants, and I think this is a feeling everybody has, while the Irish are in a very privileged position in the UK and vice versa, there is always that anxiety that, well, if, if it's not written down clearly, and I can't rely on my home government to enforce those rights because they can't, it can lead to that level of anxiety. And there is, you know, quite a lot of people who retire both directions, who had access healthcare both directions for university all the time. And people travel back and forth. There's quite a lot of people who go to school back and forth on the border. And it's been, when we were doing the research, we were trying to figure out how that was funded. Like who funded the um, somebody from, say, Monaghan on one side crossing the border into Northern Ireland to go to school. And it was really unclear and it was like basically didn't get an answer what seemed to happen was that both sides just decided to absorb the cost and not make a fuss about it which is great but how long that continues that depends on policy decisions and that depends on governments not changing their policies and i think we've all seen lots of examples where immigrants that has changed for immigrants and that has been that that can change very quickly. And I think that's where the anxiety is about the common travel year. Certainly both governments at the moment are very clear that they're fully supportive of it. But I think there is always that anxiety as an immigrant when, you, when you're living somewhere or what's your basis for being there. And that's very much the difference between that and the settled status scheme for EU citizens in the UK. If that's underpinned by an ultimate withdrawal agreement by the UK and the EU, because if it's anything like the draft withdrawal agreement as currently stands, there will be protections for that status and the ability to adjudicate or to litigate on the basis of it. And there'll be panels to resolve disputes uh, that arise with regard to those rights eventually after the period of enforcement by the Court of Justice of the European Union envisaged by the withdrawal agreement lapses. But there are more protections there. There is a, a framework of protections in place that is more substantial than just saying the Irish and the UK governments get on and this will all be fine. Yeah, it's, it's having recourse, isn't it? And once you've got those, all of these things properly laid out, written into law, all of those things, then at least you can say, well, that's not this thing that happened to me isn't the thing that should have happened because of X, Y and Z. Whereas otherwise... It's in the hands of the gods. And I mean, it has in lots of ways been, in its history, the lack of writing it down has benefited as well. Like there's been pluses to the, the sort of nebulous nature of the common travel area. 
But I, I think, and I, even when relations between the two countries weren't particularly good, and I mean, there have been moments, there was an economic war in the 30s, I and mean, there has been moments where relations between the two states have not been, I mean, we're, even with Brexit, it's a, relations between the two states really are in a very good position. But I think it's almost a case of, yes, historically, even thing, when things were bad, everything was okay, but with immigration, there's also been plenty of evidence of people who thought everything was okay. I mean, the Windrush generation are obviously the really obvious example, but a lot of their problem is they have no paperwork to demonstrate their right to be here. I, you know, Irish citizens don't have any paperwork to demonstrate when they came, when they entered the UK, how long they've been in the UK, don't have any of that paperwork either. So there, it is more of a kind of looking at what happens over here and that causing worry rather than a sort of historic example of things going badly historically or that. Or it's the unknown of the future given what has been happening around immigration beyond the UK, but in the UK, but well beyond the UK, major kingdom as well. Yeah. I mean, I think we talk quite often... Um... Obviously, these these issues are really of, of great significance for Irish citizens in the UK and for the whole issue about cross-border life, actually, in Northern Ireland. But what about for um, UK citizens living in Ireland, perhaps people who've, who've migrated there from England, Scotland, Wales? What does this uncertainty about the common travel area mean for them? Well, the Irish immigration um, system is... Also, I would say um, if you're not an EU citizen and you're not from a global north wealthy country, it's also very harsh. It's a very harsh direct provision system in Ireland when it comes to people who are coming for refugee or asylum status. There is also, I think, quite a negative atmosphere around immigration, not around the common travel area and not around the EU citizens, but there is, they don't call it the hostile environment in Ireland, but I mean, there's an equally you know, negative, we you know, changed the constitution about 20 years ago to get rid of automatic citizenship from birth. So there is also in, in Ireland that sort of change in, in culture towards immigration. I think what it has, I mean, there's been a huge increase in people getting passports anyway for Ireland from people living in the UK who are looking for Irish citizenship, but also I think people living in Ireland who maybe are living in Ireland and don't have the Irish granny, but are living in Ireland and have accrued enough time. It's also, it's expensive. It's not as expensive uh, to get citizenship as it is in the UK, but there isn't a test, for instance, um, like there is here. But they, there has been an upsurge of people getting citizenship. Now, whether or not that citizenship, they're getting the citizenship on the basis of wanting to secure their rights in the common travel area, or they're getting their citizenship in order to be able to access EU citizenship rights, that remains an open question. That's probably some work that needs to be done there to, to ask people why they are getting it. Because I think you probably, I would imagine if you're a UK citizen living in Ireland, the attraction would be maintaining your EU citizenship so that you can, you know, you can keep your EHIC card and you can travel and live throughout Europe that you will maintain all those rights. So I think there's probably a mixture of wanting to secure your position in Ireland uh, maybe you want to vote in referenda, for instance, and things like that. Uh, so I would imagine part of it is the common travel area, but part of it is also trying to maintain your EU citizen status. Yeah, that's certainly something that's been coming. I think that it, that combination is exactly right. That's what's been coming out of the interviews that we've done with British people who've applied for Irish citizenship. And it is very much that story of you know, on the one hand, actually, I, I remember a very, very stark statement made by a 
a Scottish academic working in an Irish university who just said, well, let's be honest, if they can do this, talking to Britain, they can do anything. So, you know, my rights are, my future rights are not are not guaranteed, essentially. But also, yes, I still want to be able to move freely within Europe. A lot of my work is in other European countries. So, so I think there's a combination of things as well as, you know, okay, I've spent 30 years living in Ireland type of thing. And, you know, what, yeah, what's... Much as well. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It is bringing that decision home for a lot of yeah. people. Because yeah. if they've talked about expense, and it is, there is still a real expense in... Yeah doing this and whilst EU citizenship rights remain full, whilst the common travel area, there wasn't question marks about it or how it was going to function after Brexit. It was a decision that a lot of people could quite happily put off for a period of time, whereas I think it's now very much live in people's mind and that's why we're seeing this upsurge in figures going through these routes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's become much more urgent. I mean, I think that what all of these things point to is actually how those considerations over the common travel area are caught up very much in much broader questions about citizenship and nationality, as well as obviously the transformations that Brexit brings and and how it complicates things. The loss of the immigration and social security bill 2019 is the thing that I think is the most alarming element because... It does point to everything will need to be done in a rush. And when something is in a statutory instrument, it is less secure than it's in a Mm. fully blown act of parliament in the aftermath of Brexit. And we've watched 70, 80 years of legislation come through the UK about Ireland and longer in Ireland relative to the UK. And it sits there. Legislation sits for a long time as something that's been fixed. And if this is fixed in a rush, it could end up not attracting that much attention on the parliamentary calendar for a long time to come, even if that has suboptimal effects on people's day-to-day lives. I think losing that as a statute... For everybody. For everybody. Beyond the common travel area, it's for every citizen, that's a a real concern, I think. How is this going to come back and how is it going to be fixed in the short to medium term? Because as a bill, it's it's okay, but it it could be changed to become more draconian. Not necessarily regarding the common travel area, but with regard to um, other EU citizens. So it is... It is something that I think everyone thought was more or less settled that is now there's a lot of possibility for it to change. Um, and I think that's a big concern. I think for me, um, the concern would be the partners of Irish citizens who are here as status in the UK because they are married to EU citizens who haven't registered for settled status because of the guidance for Irish citizens. I think people need to need to make sure that they're their entitlement to be here is fully secured um, if they're from outside the European Union and they're married to an Irish citizen and up to now it's all been straightforward. Um, for me, that it's just a group of people I think that could get lost and then all of a sudden it, it become, become an issue. I, I would also generally have a concern uh, about people living on the border but around day-to-day life. So the common travel area lets you travel back and forth and things like that. So it's not about stopping people on the border. Like That's never been a concern. There was never going to be, we're going to check everybody crossing the border. That Even though there has been a big increase in Ireland, actually, in the Gardaí checking buses and trains, mm. that's come 
and the last year, um, quite a significant, you know, really significant uptick in, in that. But people, for education purposes, for healthcare purposes, for all those things, for work, not moving necessarily on it. It's not about you physically moving across the border. It's what you're doing. Yeah, access, what you're accessing when you cross the border. And yeah. Without the withdrawal agreement, because things like frontier worker status is all in the withdrawal agreement. And if that goes, I mean, that's also a problem, obviously, for people who travel back and forth to Paris and Luxembourg and Brussels and things like that. To, um, but there are a lot of crossings and they happen at every level of society. It's everyone from a nursery worker through to people who are moving about who have businesses on both sides of the border. Yeah. It isn't that you are probably uh, quite independently wealthy or potentially independently wealthy and, and doing a transnational job which involves a lot of air travel. It will affect all strata of society. And that's not something that's fixed by the common travel area. Yeah. I think that's been the big misnomer about the common travel area from the start of the Brexit debate. It was, oh, we don't have to worry about Ireland. The common travel area. Day-to-day life is not fixed. If you're living on the border, day-to-day life is not fixed via the common travel area. It just allows you to go. It doesn't, beyond that, there's a whole other things, a whole other set of rights and obligations that have been secured through EU law that will disappear. So I think it's, uh, there would be my three big concerns, I think, coming out. Well, thank you both very much. That's been absolutely fascinating. And yeah, thank you for making so clear what what the issues are and aren't with the common travel area. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast hosted by me, Dr. Michaela Benson, and produced by Emma Halton at Art of Podcast. The series is part of a UK and a Changing Europe funded research project, Brexit Brits Abroad, That's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU27. We're really keen to hear from you about the issues and concerns we address in the programme. So please do get in touch with any thoughts, queries and questions. You can find our contact details on our webpage, Brexit Brits Abroad, or get in touch via social media. We're on Twitter at BrexPatsEU and we have a Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. Finally, in case you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.